2: One, and we're on city limits. Um, and uh, the one was because there was a countdown going on then. Um, and uh, I'm Kevin Healy, this is City Limits. Zeb Peek is presenting today with us again. Morning, Zeb. Morning. Karina's pressing the button, she's the one who was counting down for us, uh, and doing it very eloquently and beautifully, I thought. <laughs> um, but uh. Anyway, we're going to have, we've got two guests today, so we're going to, the first guest of course is uh, one of your co-workers in a sense, uh, said we've got Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth, yeah, talking about a recent release they've put out about fracking in Victoria, they've been praising the government for some time and I think suddenly the government's uh, doing the wrong thing, <laughs> so we're about to find out, and we're also going to talk to one of our regu- uh, regulars, uh, Professor Paddy Moriarty from Monash, uh, adjunct professor out there these days, Paddy's sitting in his office and he... um. He's going to talk to us about a number of issues, including getting to getting to uh, zero emissions. But he says if we do that, and he said we can do it, but it's going to mean radical changes in our lifestyles. So he's going to talk about that. So that's going to be Paddy in the second half of the show. Uh, so we'll go to we'll go to Cam fairly quickly. But just a I thought one um, just a point last week in this whole furor about. Uh, about sexual assaults, etc., that's going on at the moment. Um, we, had, um, we had the head of the Angus Campbell, we all remember Angus, of course, standing every night on the telly, or not on the telly, but on our tellies. We saw him standing next to Peter Dutton every night, telling us how many people they'd, they'd got up today and thrown onto islands and... Uh, no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people had been captured and uh, he was to praise every night he praised the, the role he played in keeping Australia safe from people fleeing our invasions. Um, well, last week, as we know, he came out and said that um, at, a military, at a military graduation that the students shouldn't go out at night, drink it and all that stuff, which, which we assume he was aiming at the women students, I would think, um, as mm. opposed to the male students, because the gentle young males who are now trained killers, um, certainly if they got into trouble at night, it'd have to be the woman's fault because she was out, I would have thought, don't you think? I mean, that's mm, pretty... Well,
1: that's what they'd have you believe. That's
2: what they'd have you believe. But anyway, he, he said he was misinterpreted. And then he said, he said, my intent was to raise awareness and challenge the group to do what they can to mitigate risk and take action if they uh, witness unacceptable behaviour. Now I would have thought that's digging a hole a bit deeper. Actually, I'm not sure that actually gets you out of the hole, does it? I don't. I just don't think so. But on, on those uh, on those points, I had a thought yesterday, and I raised it with Karina, and I'll ask you both to comment. It strikes me the Herald Sun, for instance, uh, has mostly ignored International Women's labour. but on Monday it gave it quite a bit of coverage. But there was a front page piece, and its coverage was the thirty, the thirty most, uh, the thirty best sports women of the last X number of years. Mm. And inside, there were a couple of stories about business women and uh, the business community. Um, you know, w- women getting into better jobs in the and, and becoming directors of companies, etc. But no talk about working women. And given that International Women's Day was is in fact International Working Women's Day and began as an industrial dispute. Uh, I, it struck me that all of a sudden, because it also this year happened to coincide with what was Labor Day, but is now Mumba Day, and Mumba, in fact, uh, hijacked Labor from Labor Day. And earlier in earlier, in earlier times, in Labor Day, of course, people used to you know, there were working there were union floats, and when workers, unions were much stronger then as well, union floats, and um, it was a day for trade unions. But then, soon as Mumba came in. I think, deliberately designed to get Labour out of Labour Day. They actually banned union floats because they were political. Uh, And um, I'm just wondering whether we're seeing the same thing with International Women's Day. It's no longer called International Working Women's Day when the main major media, 3CR does some brilliant coverage on the day. But is it being hijacked by the usual forces who would try to take the left-wing politics out of it. I just wonder if you two have any thoughts on that. It just struck me as a possibility.
3: Just quickly, allow me to turn I'll Kevin's mic t- off for a second while doing that. Yes, right. What do you reckon, Zeb?
1: Um, yeah, I think it's it's kind of the way of a lot of these uh, days that start off um, or, or marches or um, that start off as protests around a particular issue, but Um, sort of become diluted over the years um, and potentially taken over by more neoliberal capitalist ideas so yeah I would think that um, that's probably a likely thing that's happening that doesn't mean that there isn't value in the day and that we can't still um, use it to bring up valuable discussions Um, but yeah it's likely that there's going to be Um, people trying to make money out of it at the same time. What do you think, Karina?
3: Mm, That's a very very measured response from you, actually. (laughs) Um, Without wanting to be crass and trying to be as concise as possible, I frankly don't give a damn about the gender of the CEO. Um, That's, you know, that's monetary wealth is built off the backs of working people and working women globally. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not here to celebrate it. I'm sure that's not an unusual opinion here at 3CR. Um, Just anecdotally I come from a science background academically and doing honours in science in a university in Melbourne was um, quite eye-opening for me. It's really rife this kind of office safe politic of wanting more women or gender representation Mm -hmm. in the STEM field, the sciences, I guess you'd say. Um, And it's weirdly apolitical in a way. Um, Not that it's a bad – it's a very well-intentioned argument. It's not a bad argument to have. It's not a bad cause to stand up for. But it does leave very little room for the discussions of exploitation, of – people from undergrad students through PhD students to even postgraduate fellows who uh, who have bugger all job security. Um, that's not even talking about how PhD students are likely to come out of it with lasting mental health issues um, and how many of the projects, specifically the science projects, are funded by the Defence Force. Like... Mm. There's a real need for an intersectional view when it comes to talking about women. You can't talk about women in isolation. I don't give a damn if the lab head is a woman and she's exploiting more women underneath her. That's not really representation to me or important representation. Yeah, But, yeah, that's yeah. that's my two cents.
1: No, that's a good two cents. Um, and that also kind of links in with uh, we had – there was an International Women's Day march um, in Melbourne on the day, um, and there was no um, Indigenous speaker at the march, um, and we had a comment from Mariki Onus, um, who was really upset about um, what had happened. Basically, um, Lydia Thorpe couldn't uh, was planned to do a speech, but couldn't, um, with some time given that they could have still found a speaker. Um, and Marie Kionis was just at the march attending um, and they kind of tried to get her to do a speech without any preparation, um, just sort of last minute, um, like really seemingly last thought. Um, And it kind of just reiterates the fact that International Women's Day is really not inclusive and hasn't considered, you know, it's, it's really centred on white women's voices um, and is still missing out on a big chunk of the issues that women as a whole face and especially um, First Nations women in Australia. So,
2: yeah. Lydia, by the way, was excellent in an interview this morning on Radio National about this state inquiry into uh, the background of the history of what's happened. She was excellent this morning. Um, but um, yeah, just just to finish up, you, the point you raised, in fact, Karina, I, I, I struck me as well that you know, saying we need more women as bosses, more women as directors. I mean, a boss is a boss is a boss. Uh, I don't care whether, as you say, whether they're a man or a woman, they, they're going to be a boss and they're going to exploit workers. And that's, that's, that's simple it. as that. And
3: is it representative representative of the general population if your if your politic, whatever it is, doesn't include raising up those without a voice are most impoverished in society, then it isn't worth a damn to me. I mean, we're all no. under the boot no. and we're going to stay that way unless people yep. wise up.
2: And on a, on a more positive note, I remember <laughs> David Leonhelm, that um, former senator from whatever he's called, a very right-wing liberal, whatever he called himself, I remember a year or two ago he accused um, Sarah Hansen-Young, the Green, the Green senator, uh, in Parliament, he said, "Stop shagging men," and you know she thought all men were rapists. He made these terrible comments about her. Well, last week in the federal court, she was granted $120,000 in damages over what he'd said, and he was trying to hide behind parliamentary privilege and quali- and um, qualified privilege, uh, but his his argument failed. And in fact, one of the judges in the appeals court said uh, that. Um, there must be a line which beyond which needlessly and gratuitous, gratuitously offensive and boorish statements about the person's life of, or personal life of one's political opponents can be considered to be unreasonable. The line was clearly crossed in this case. That attack was manifestly crass, offensive and obviously sexist. It employed boys' own locker room gossip and innuendo of the most dubious prominence to shame, ridicule and embarrass Senator Hanson Young before the public at large. So a good victory and she's going to give the um, 120 damages to uh, Plan International and the South Australian Working Women's Centre. So that's a positive note this week.
3: Thanks for that, Kevin. <laughs> and right. next time I'd appreciate it if you could give a content warning when you mention um, sexual sexual assault.
2: Oh, do we do? Okay, yes. I know right. you're yes, out of practice yes, yes, a little bit. You've spent a
3: long time away. but <laughs>
2: <laughs> Okay, content warning. There you are. You've got it. Um, look, we'll take a break. Get Cam Walker and we'll talk about
3: fracking. Great.
4: I think Welcome to Country is a very dangerous concept and initiative. I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. You know, the idealism that lies behind that, obviously, is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're going to continuously welcome them to country, what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people. Because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders and, and this barbaric sense of what they've done to occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other.
1: You're listening to Radical Radio
0: 3CR.
2: Okay, on the line we've got Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth and uh, Cam, I know in the past, has has praised uh, the state government for its role in putting an embargo on, uh, or moratorium on on gas exploration in Victoria or gas uh, extraction in Victoria and certainly on fracking, but more recently things have changed and they've put out a press release which isn't quite as enamored of the state government. Um, Cam, um, what's what's going on?
5: Oh, well, it's... it's Quite an interesting space at present. Um, The campaign that led to the ban on fracking, which ran probably between 2011 and 2016, was a success. And we achieved two outcomes. The first one was a permanent ban on the process of fracking, so hydraulic fracturing, which is a very destructive way of accessing gas, and a moratorium on onshore conventional gas drilling. Now, the moratorium will lapse in june this year uh but the mor the fracking ban has been put into the state's constitution so it is a mix of good and bad
2: mm. and what well the good bit is the obviously the good bit but the bad bit what's what's like what's the odd what are the odds on the government opening up for uh for exploration or or in fact continuing the moratorium or continuing the so ban? it
5: has It has gone through Parliament that the moratorium will be lifted. It has been in place since 2014 so it means that we have stopped onshore gas development and all the impacts on farmland and all the impacts on climate for those six years or seven years which is really good. Um, But they are adamant that they do want to open up the state. So they're kind of running an inconsistent line on climate change. If you step back from this issue, the government has committed to net zero emissions by 2050 along with the other states and territories in Australia all that the state and territory governments have acted because the federal government is just missing in action on climate change so um, the net zero target is good, although it's too late. We, you know, climate science says we need to do this much earlier. So they need to set five yearly emission reduction targets, and we're awaiting the targets for 2025 and 2030. Gas, of course, is a fossil fuel, so there's just no reason if you're going to be reducing emissions to open up new gas fields. But they are very committed to doing it, and it's interesting that whenever you hear Victorian ALP politicians talk about gas they're using the old line of gas is a transition fuel, and that's an argument from the 1990s. It's, it's defunct, it's no longer necessary with all the developments in, in renewables and battery storage since then. So they're doing some final work on regular, regular, regulation sorry, um, of how this gas industry will be restarted. But effectively, from July 1st this year, companies will be able to apply for new exploration licences for gas onshore across the south of Victoria.
1: Right. Well, congratulations, first of all, to the community and to um, your campaign for, for having a win, even if it's not the complete win yet. Um, it's good news to see uh, fracking banned in the constitution. Um, and what are your, what's your next focus, do you think, um, moving forward on uh, getting rid of this idea that gas is um, in any way a necessary step uh, towards zero emissions.
5: Just on that first point, I think, yes, it's good to acknowledge this was a really great campaign. You know, this was a campaign that was won in regional Victoria. It wasn't the usual suspects. It was farming communities who often vote conservatively, you know, working with urban-based environmentalists that won. And I think, you know, it's always good to remember the victories and especially the victories that are driven by the grassroots. And it remains the only permanent ban on fracking in all of Australia and one of very few in the world. So, you know, it's a really good outcome and good on everyone that contributes to it. Um, In terms of what's next, from July 1, conventional onshore gas drilling is open for exploration and there's also the potential of offshore oil and gas drilling in the western waters. So if you can imagine west of Cape Otway to the South Australian border, both Mm. in state and Commonwealth borders. So that's the next focus in this fight. Um, The Bass Strait oil and gas drilling, I think we fight on the grounds of the impacts on the commercial fishes and the climate implications and the impacts on marine animals, particularly from seismic testing. And the onshore gas campaign, I think, comes down to site-by-site resistance of affected communities. And we know from working particularly in Western Victoria... People don't want to see landscapes industrialised. They know that the time for new gas is over and they know that this gas isn't going to drive down prices. You know, the Victorian government's own report admits that. So we're basically doing this to fulfil this kind of fantasy that gas is somehow a fuel of the future. It won't help consumers. It will produce very little jobs and it will impact negatively on farmland and climate. So it's a really bad idea and I think communities understand that.
2: Mm. Cam, where does the AGL proposal, which hopefully will get knocked back, But the AGL proposal for Hastings to actually import LNG and process it there, where does that stand in all this?
5: So as I understand it, AGL kind of posit this as a sensible kind of stopgap measure. So they're saying we're not going to build an onshore facility. We're basically going to bring a a boat in and supply gas uh, in the next couple of winters where there is an expected shortfall in gas supply. However, the community down there resists this proposal very, very strongly on environmental grounds. And uh, we would just argue there is just no reason to be bringing new gas into the system. We continue to export gas north, which ends up in the export market. And so we are sending gas overseas. And so it's crazy to then bring other gas in, which may be produced through fracking. So we would support the local campaign. We hope that it is knocked back. Um, And we would say the time for any form of new investment in fossil fuel gas is over and
2: climate science makes that very clear. Perhaps balancing the uh, balancing the the, the government's policy against his own electorate has sent Greg Hunt into hospital, actually, because he's a he's the local member down there, of course, and he's on that one he totally opposes gas, but as a federal federal minister, he supports it totally. He's in a bit of a bind, I would have thought. Um, Came last week a commission a report by Frontier Economics, which was commissioned by the um, the Pipelines and Gas Association. Uh, came out and said that renewables could cost billions and we have to have to proceed with gas and we must have balance. It was a typical pro-gas one. But they've argued, in fact, that it's going to cost the country billions if we go to renewables and don't use gas as the transitionary fuel. Um, comment on that?
5: That's a little bit like the Livestock Association saying we need to eat more red meat. You know, you you just Mm -hmm. (laughs) don't believe them. Um, It's it's clear that,
2: you know. Good heavens.
5: What their motivations are um if you look there's just dozens and dozens of reports out there that are very robust that say well no the cost of renewables keeps going down the cost of storage keeps going down the cost of green hydrogen keeps going down we just do not need gas anymore um it was a transition fuel you could argue in the 1990s but the world has changed you know and we're now squabbling over the last little remnants of gas that's still in the ground so you know that's That's just not it. It's recently come out that the federal government gave a huge amount of money without a tender process to companies that were going to try and suggest how we could have a gas-led recovery. Yeah. Clearly, the federal government is backing fossil fuels, particularly gas and, to a degree, coal over over uh, other energy sources. They're out of step with science, they're out of step with the market and they're out of step with reality because the coal-fired power stations, there's been multiple media reports in the last couple of weeks. Most of them are going to close early because they're becoming clunkers and they're too expensive actually to run and the companies will close them because they're not making a profit off them. So the future is renewables and storage and energy efficiency, and anyone who says otherwise is just ignoring the evidence and is on the wrong side of history.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's it really shows the power of, um, I suppose, advertising and messaging that somehow um, just putting the words gas and renewables together in a like pretty looking picture um, with some green fields or something makes it seem like gas is somehow uh, not a fossil fuel, but of course it is.
5: Exactly. And it's unfortunate that even some unions have bought into that and they're saying we need gas for manufacturing. And yet groups like Beyond Zero Emissions have very clearly shown that we can electrify our manufacturing sector. We can certainly electrify our domestic sector. We can do that at a cost. Uh, benefit for consumers and for manufacturers and that they, we won't be losing jobs. But unfortunately there is this kind of you know, strong kind of narrative that, oh yes gas is part of the transition and if we don't keep drilling gas we will lose more manufacturing jobs. And we would say no, we're losing manufacturing jobs because of market decisions and free trade agreements and the fact we've offshored most of our production. It's not actually about how much gas we have and there are alternatives in pretty much all sectors to transition towards green electricity for industrial and manufacturing processes. So uh, gas is caught up in the culture war narrative that we have around energy and that's driven by the you know the climate troglodytes and the federal coalition. It's disappointing that a couple of unions have come on board. But I think most unions now get it. You just have to look at what's happening in the Hunter Valley where unions are embracing the need for a transition plan away from coal. So yes it is unfortunately there's this kind of rump a very effective and very powerful and very well connected voices from the fossil fuel industry that have got the coalition government to listen to them but I reckon most other people have stopped paying attention
2: now. We're talking to Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth. Cam, parallel to this up north, the Beetaloo Basin in the Northern Territory is one area where the gas industry is moving in big time uh, with great support from the federal and Northern Territory governments but massive opposition from the local indigenous people. Do Do you know much about that?
5: Look, I haven't been tracking it in great deal lately, but we do know that there's no social licence for this. Poll after poll in the Northern Territory shows that most people don't want it. Um, 51% of the Northern Territory is under exploration licence for oil and gas at present. There was a moratorium on fracking, and basically the federal government leant on the Northern Territory government and made them lift it, I think Mm. in 2018. So, you know, it's really in play at present, and as you say, the federal government is, is just Pushing like crazy to throw our money public money at the industry so that they can develop the basin and uh, you know this is really the live the live debate at present is the gas fields. In places like Victoria where we're densely populated and you can mobilise local communities to fight the gas companies you can often win, it's so much harder than places like the Northern Territory. So that's why, you know, here in the South we've won here on fracking. We need to support particularly traditional owners in the North as they fight their campaign.
2: Mm -hmm. We've been to climate change rallies over the the journey where you see um, local communities with those triangular things they hold up, naming that local community uh, as being opposed to gas and opposed to exploration. How are those communities feeling about what the government's now doing?
5: Well, uh, pretty much uniformly, the the lock-the-gate communities, there were 75 communities across regional Victoria that declared themselves gas field free during the fracking campaign everyone we talked to, and there are groups still operating right across the state, they're pretty cranky uh, about the uh, intention to lift the moratorium on gas drilling. Uh, The government did uh, a thing called the Victorian Gas Program, which polled... Uh, attitudes in regional Victoria, and they claim that, oh, look, your people can live with it. But the minute you drill into the data, you realise people aren't happy, um, you know, that they don't want to see further gas devel- development onshore. So that resentment and that anger still exists. It was clearly an issue in the last state election that saw the ALP come back into power uh, and kick the coalition out after one term. Gas fracking was a huge issue in regional Victoria. In, in that election campaign, so I think that they ignore this sentiment at their peril.
2: Mm. Oh, right. Good. Uh, you did mention in passing, by the way, hydrogen, um, and it's been the news a fair bit lately. There was, you know, that the Japan is hoping to actually import lots of hydrogen from Australia um, in the next, in the next, well, the next immediate future. In fact, um, where do you see hydrogen fitting into the energy mix, as the industry calls it?
5: Hydrogen is an important part of it, but only if it's green hydrogen. That is, if it's produced by excess um, energy coming, say, from wind turbines, et cetera, and it's eminently doable. The danger is that here in Victoria, there is a test program to try and make hydrogen out of brown coal and then put the gases underground through a method called carbon capture capture and storage, or CCS. We strongly oppose this because the time for new uses of coal is over and that's what's called brown hydrogen and it will be climate destroying and we strongly oppose it and we are very disappointed that the ALP has backed this with considerable uh, funds from the public purse in recent years.
2: When you say the ALP, is that the state or state government doing state that? ALP. Right. Yes, yeah. both
5: state and federal governments have supported it. I think the most recent round was there was grants of $90 million and I think half of that came from the federal government and half of that came from the state government. It's good that there wasn't an allocation in the last, the most recent state budget, and we would expect there would be no more. And most people you speak to in government understand that. But carbon capture and storage is not going to work at scale for coal uh, in a way that's Commercially viable, most people will get it. They just feel that uh, you know they need to kind of mouth the platitudes that oh yes we're going to have CCS and will allow us to keep digging up a brown coal in the Latrobe Valley. That's not the fact. It's not going anywhere. It's like peddling nuclear power. It's not going anywhere. It makes part of your base feel good about itself because you you know you, you're saying the words they want to hear, but it's really not going anywhere.
2: Yeah. Because course, the, the big example they were using to show how wonderful carbon capture and storage is was Barrow Island on, uh, off the West Australian coast with Chevron. And in fact, they've had to abandon all work because the whole thing ain't working. Um, they run into real trouble with it. So um, even where they, they set the example, it, it just doesn't work.
5: Exactly. And that's true right around the world. There was a very famous carbon capture and storage plant in Canada that uh, recently closed because of the cost overrun. So it's this kind of magical technology and the proponents are saying, oh, it's about to become commercially viable at scale. But they have been saying that for at least 15 years and it's really <laughs> getting no that's closer. Right. So, you know, they need to let go of that particular dream. But, of course, it's really hard for some people to do
2: that. Yeah, OK. Look, Cam, we're going to finish up there because we're going to go into to Paddy Moriarty and talk about similar things. But, um, look, thanks for your time today, and we'll keep in touch. But just before we go, though, is there anything people can do to help out with the campaign in terms of stopping the government going ahead with this?
5: Oh, absolutely. If if you just check the Frenzy Earth Melbourne website and just do a search for um, uh, offshore gas, you'll you'll find all the resources there. Things will really ramp up in the next
2: couple of months, so keep an eye on the FOE website. That's right, and that Hastings decision is due to come down later this month as well, so, yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Cam. Thanks for your time today. Cheers. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Cam Walker there, who's, of course, Friends of the Earth, been a friend of the Earth for years and years and years and years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Zeb, Zeb's been there a little little less time. I mean, but one definitely. Definitely. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, look, we'll take a break, come back, and we will talk to Paddy Moriarty about, um, about similar matters, in fact.
3: This is a song by Anathiju featuring Sharia Mansour called Somosur or We Are South.
6: Algunos dicen que debemos sentarnos, pero las ideas solo pueden levantarnos, caminar, recorrer, no rendirse ni retroceder, ver, aprender como esponja absorbe, nadie sobre todos faltan, todos suman, todos para todos, todo para nosotros. Soñamos en grande que se caiga el imperio, lo gritamos algo, no queda más remedio, esto no es utopía, es alegre rebelde. Es el terremoto en escuchar Okay,
2: we're on the, on air and uh, back on air with City Limits and uh, Paddy Moriarty on the line. Paddy's adjunct professor these days at Monash, and he. Uh, Sits there researching away, Paddy. I know you've told me you've been researching on achieving zero emissions in climate change, but you suggest this could lead to some quite drastic changes in our lifestyle. Do you want to elaborate on that a bit?
0: Yes, uh, our work and a number of others have, have suggested that if you want to shift to a zero energy, fu- uh, sorry, a zero emissions future, um, you'll have to do it with a lot less energy than at present. And further, if you use a lot less energy, you'll probably have a much lower gross, uh, that's global, than domestic product. Um, and of course, that would lead to uh, <laughs> very substantial changes because uh, most economies in the world are actually committed to economic growth. Now, what has been found by, um, in fact, some uh, ANU researchers is that uh, for the, for the wealthy countries, at least, for several decades, uh, the, the per capita gross domestic product in places like Australia no longer cor- uh, corresponds to what you might call a genuine progress indicator. In other words, um, it seems like there's been a divergence between what really leads to um, human welfare and the um, and, and GDP per capita. What this means is there's not much point in, in trying to... Um, continuing increasing GNP per capita because it, all, it's helping, all it's helping is um, corporations. It's not really helping the Australian people.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so if we did follow a sort of ideal gro- degrowth scenario, um, yes. how much would we be looking at reducing our energy use and um, what would be like the the earliest that we could get to zero emissions, do you think?
0: The question is pretty well impossible to answer. Uh, there may also be limits on... Uh, let, let's say we wanted to go to shift to 100% renewable energy. At uh, present, we use very li- roughly 600 exajoules. Don't worry what an exajoule is. It's 10 to the 18th power joules um, or, mm-hmm. or 10 to the 15th power kilojoules, which is, you know, the food unit. Uh, it's a lot of energy. I don't think that uh, renewable energy could... All types of renewable energy could not get anywhere near that, that figure, uh, especially when um, the the uh, environmental, um, what you might call, uh, challenges of renewable energy are included as well. See, we tend to see things in black and white. Um, you know, fossil fuels are... You know, uh, 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 emit pollutants and uh, as well as um, a lot of carbon dioxide. And uh, fossil fuels emit none. That's not true. In fact, the two overlap.
2: You mean renewables? Just you, you just said fossil fuels emit none. You meant renewables emit none, I presume.
0: Yeah, sorry, yeah. yeah. But in fact, the two uh, energy groups overlap Um in much the same way as fossil fuels are not all the same, with um, natural gas emitting uh, much lower levels of carbon dioxide per unit of energy than coal, um, then renewable energies can also be arranged on a continuum. And there is some overlap between, especially um, the lower end of fossil fuels, uh, um, Natural gas and um, some projects in hydro, in um, uh, geothermal, and in uh, biomass. The reason for this is well, hydro actually emits, um, can emit both carbon and methane in in, uh, in in tropical hydro projects, which is where most of the f- of the remaining hydro uh, potential is located. If um, if in fact a forest or is or even grassland is submerged for the reservoir behind the dam then as that uh um as that vegetation decays it releases carbon dioxide and um and methane and this can in fact rival um emissions from a from a uh, natural gas power station for maybe 20 years and the same uh, geothermal plants can also emit carbon dioxide as well as other noxious gases so uh, as I say, there is an overlap, and this means maybe we'll have to be a bit more judicious and for a long time use um, some uh, fossil fuels as well, um, natural gas. The main thing we have to do straight away is cut down our energy use, which, which of course will mean mainly cutting down uh, fossil fuel energy use. The other thing we have to consider is that there's a huge difference in energy per capita between the different parts of the world. A lot of uh, sub-Saharan African countries have um, uh, the, the use of, of what, what we might call commercial fuels, that is, emitting, uh, that is excluding um, fuel wood, which, are, which is only a tiny percentage of uh, that used in, uh, in a typical uh, OECD country like Australia. So, in other words, energy use there has to increase a bit to meet minimum um, social welfare standards. And it is in the uh, higher emitting countries, which of course includes Australia, that there will have to be large reductions.
1: Right. So um, in a country like Australia, what would you be envisioning um, would be like personal lifestyle changes um, that would... That would end up having to to be in place um, to sort of live with a lower energy use.
0: Well, I could recommend reading some of my colleague uh, Ted Trainer from the University of New South Wales, now retired, on the on the simple way. Australia actually is better placed than most countries in the world for both wind and solar. Um, for instance, in uh, one analysis by colleagues in Spain, have shown that. In the uh, European Union uh, community, uh, there's just not enough room for solar, especially given that uh, the insulation levels, of course, are lower than in, say, um, North Africa or so on. So um, what you've got to realise is that with economic growth, it does provide some things, of course, or a lot of things, but on the other hand, it takes away a lot of... um, of goods. In other words, the only things that get valued are those that can be sold. All other goods are downplayed, uh, devalued. Um, for instance, feminists be, <laughs> have stressed at women's work, uh, because it it doesn't get rewarded, it tends to get downplayed. And this is this is what happens in general with in um, in a market economy that that has uh, economic growth as its aim. So yes, there will have to be. Um, a lot of social changes, we'll have to think about what we really need to develop as as persons. So, of course, there are basic things like we have to have adequate nutrition, um, sociality, in other words, friends and relatives and so on, um, housing and and things like that. But the rest are open to argument. And also the way they they are satisfied. For instance, uh, food doesn't necessarily have to include meat. Um, I'm a vegetarian, so this and that would save an enormous amount of greenhouse emissions if, in fact, the world moved to a mainly vegetarian diet.
2: Yeah, and and of course, yesterday we had the prime minister come out and say that we must have growth, and he was the new path to great growth for our economy, uh, which uh, and they they still see growth as the as the way it has to go, and it's a natural, it's the nature of capitalism anyway. But also, he was saying on climate change that we can address it by using fossils, but using technology to make fossils less polluting. Your your comment on that? that
0: yes, uh, this is um, green coal and so on. Uh, th- th- what he's mainly talking about is um, carbon capture and storage. Yeah. Now, this has been this has been uh, discussed for at least thirty years. And so far we 've done precisely nothing. There are about thirty million tons of carbon dioxide sequestered each year, thirty million. In fact, what we need is about thirty billion a thousand times more. What is more? Some of that carbon dioxide that is that is sequestered is used to push oil and gas out of um, out of declining um oil and gas fields in America. In other words, we are sequestering carbon dioxide to turn out more fossil fuels to burn. So you can see that this is not exactly a, a very sustainable approach.
2: Yeah, well, in fact, I was uh, we were talking to Cam Walker earlier in the program, and on this very issue, um, I made the point that the Chevron Barrow Island proposal, where they, you know, the big, big selling point was they were going to we are going to ca- capture and store all the um, all the c o two but that 's run into massive problems and in fact, we talked to a geologist way back then, a woman called um, Llewellyn, something Llewellyn um, and she was saying the barrow Island 's quite porous, and so they should have seen this coming, but now they 've had a ban in all works because of the fact that they c- they 're running into real trouble trying to store the c o two in what look, were, what was the yeah, state look, of the what, art well, proposal yeah look
0: well, what it is is it 's mainly. It's mainly a let-out clause. You know, look, sometime we we might um, have carbon capture and storage. Of course, carbon capture and storage can only be, be done on on uh, emissions this year. What they're now talking about, because um, none has been... There's been no uh, carbon capture and storage on, 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 on fossil fuel power stations and um, none of them are carbon capture-ready. I always remember one environmentalist in America said... Um, uh, my driveway is is uh, Ferrari ready, <laughs> which I thought was a very good comment on, on this. But in fact, um, if you wanted to put carbon capture and storage as an add-on to existing power stations, it would be very, very expensive and energy consumptive. So what they're doing now is talking about nets, that's net energy um, technologies. This is, for instance, air capture. Carbon dioxide stays in the air a long time, so you can capture last year's um, uh, CO2 emissions this year. Sin now, pay pay later, right? It's ideal for a capitalist economy. <laughs> uh, of course, it has a huge amount of energy. In other words, to capture it by fossil fuels, you'd have to actually use the same amount, the equal <laughs> amount of fossil fuels to capture the carbon dioxide. So <laughs> you know, this is not a path we want to go down. But again, it's all, how can we keep doing what we are? And it doesn't... It's the same with BEX. You've heard um, Kevin will remember the old expression, a BECS and a lie down.
2: Kevin, that's right. Well, Bex and a lie
0: down. Mm, right. Yeah, now stands for BECCS. That is uh, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. <laughs> the idea is that you uh, that you use um, um, bioenergy, and then, then the, you capture the emissions so you, so that you get a, a, a double emissions result. You, you replace fossil fuels and you capture that. But again, this is just being talked about. There's no one's doing it and no one will. Um, they're very desperate. In, in other words, they're suggesting things that aren't very plausible,
2: mm-hmm. anything
0: to keep economic growth yeah. going.
2: Part of what um, what Morrison was pushing, as well as and, and the government's pushing generally, is people should travel around the country and replace international tourists by touring our own country. All of which involves travel by uh, by you know vehicles that use fossils, and particularly airplanes, of course. And that they're they they're planning this new they're planning some new subsidy to support the aircraft industry over and above what they've already given them. Uh, again, this would seem to run counter to what's needed, wouldn't it?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, well, it's it's certainly a start. You know, have have your holidays in Australia. But I would go further and say have your holidays in your own state and further have them pretty close to home. Uh, I think we're going to have to get used to that. If you want to have a look at um, safaris in Africa, mean, I've been there because i taught there for six years, but you're going to have to go on the internet to find that. In other words, we have a system of of um, parks in, in, even in Melbourne and so on. Um you know, I, I think that's what we're going to have to do is just, in other words, uh, localise our, our activities more. In fact, I, I have suggested in a re- recent paper that, that we ought to aim at some target figure at, at about, say, 4,000 passenger vehicular passenger kilometres per capita for the world. Uh, you know, uh, say, Americans do about um, 28,000, so they've got to come down a lot. Um, a lot of countries in Africa... To a few thousand kilometers a year, but they're on foot
2: right if they <laughs> use words, if if the be. way <laughs> the way Boeing planes are going, they could come down a lot more quickly, of course um, <laughs> but anyway yeah
1: yeah, um just thinking of um of also lifestyle changes that kind of made me think of a bit of a catch twenty two that we're facing on top of everything else, um, which is that as temperatures um, increase and uh, extreme weather events also uh, on increase, um, we have to turn to technology and um, infrastructure even more to sort of protect us. So, you know, if temperatures increase in the tropics so that they become virtually uninhabitable, um, without
0: um, Air conditioning,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. Which I mean, there's also a question of you know um, how possible that is to even yeah. implement it at the moment. Um, but uh, yeah, do you have any comment on on that sort of catch? Yeah, or, or,
0: or what this means is that economic growth means we have to get we have to get more and more Byzantine technology. You know, for instance, um, uh, all right, so we use uh, solar radiation management, but the oceans will still acidify, therefore let's lime the oceans. But what will that do to the ecosystem in the oceans? So, oh, we'll get another fix. And it just goes on and on, right? We're going to have to withdraw from all this. We're just painting ourselves into a corner. In fact, with, um, with the coronavirus, is what they call new zoonoses, that is, diseases that come from from animals and and cross to humans. And this is partly because we're we are destroying nature and um you know, especially with the um uh you know, wild meat trade and all this sort of thing and factory farms and which help spread it and so on. In other words we're gonna to have to have a massive rethink of our of our relationship to nature as well.
2: Yeah. Paddy, we're running out of time because we've got to finish earlier these days to get the studio prepared for the next show uh, yep. with COVID. But just in a couple of minutes, I was thinking the other day I was that we, we had a group years and years ago, you'll recall, called the Melbourne Transport Study Group. We did. It used to meet Sunday mornings at Fitzroy Town Hall when had a, had <laughs> I a key to the, had a key to the building. <laughs> I know. Um, but um, – In fact, once I got off council and lost the key or they changed the locks, that's when the study group finished as well. But um, I was just saying in the studio here earlier, all the things we were talking about then in relation to transport, nothing seems to have changed very much over the years. Comment on that very quickly.
0: Well, I think, um, you know, uh, uh, the the view on public transport that now has an important place to play in Melbourne, I think that's been... Uh, pretty firmly established they're not trying to close lines they're trying to improve them and so on uh so i think in that sense there has been some change but it's still public transport let, let's say in 2019 was only still only about 11 percent, or 10 or 11 percent of melbourne's uh total vehicular passenger kilometers so in that sense um we've still got a long way to go yes mm. And the same with uh, walking and cycling. It's now it's much much lower than it was say, in in 1950. There's a couple of percent for each, you know, for work trips and so on. So yes, uh, the the more um, environmentally friendly modes are still very much um, minority modes.
2: Yeah. In fact, if you go back to 1950, I imagine that a percentage of the population using public transport would have been much higher then.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, I think they're about, we only have it for work trips, but I think for work trips up to about 20% of trips were made on foot or or by cycling, quite high. Uh, I forget what it was for um, public transport then, but, uh, yeah, certainly it had dropped a bit from the the very high levels of the late 40s and, you know, the early to late 40s when when there were car restrictions. Mm -hmm. um, It started to change after, well, about 1949 when petrol restrictions were lifted and when General Motors Holden started up. That's probably the, the signature year for a, <laughs> yeah. the start of the car age.
2: <laughs> yeah, they've gone, but the cars haven't. Um, yeah, exactly. Okay, look, Patty, thanks for your time again today. We'll get you on again sometime later in the year, obviously, but um, thanks again for your time today.
0: Okay, thanks, Kevin. Sir. Right thanks, Zeb. Yeah. Bye. Thanks, a
2: lot. thanks, bye. Okay, Patty Moriarty there, prof- adjunct professor at Monash. Uh, um, the name Professor Moriarty, of course, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, yeah. he rebels in. Great.
1: Okay. And uh, yes, capitalism is the problem once again.
2: And next week on City Limits, it is housing. Um, we'll get out of the way for Joe's program and clean up the studio. And uh, Zeb, look, thank Karina for doing a magnificent job again.
1: Yes, thank you, Karina. You are awesome.